Let me read some stuff I've been writing, and we'll go to Romans 2. We say this all the time, but relationships are built on what? Trust. Relationships are built on trust. When trust starts to crumble in a relationship, soon the relationship will crumble too. Trust. Here's the definition of trust. It's a firm belief in the character, strength, or truth of someone or something. Okay? One more time. Trust is a firm belief in the character, the strength, or the truth of someone or something. So it's one thing to say you believe in God, but it's revealed by how you trust in him and his character, strength, or truth. It's one thing to say you believe he's good or trustworthy, but again, it's proven by how you trust in what he says and operate as if what he said will come to pass or not. So we don't have a belief issue in America. Everybody in, everybody in South Carolina believes in God. They say that, okay? We don't have a belief issue in America. We have a trust issue. Why are we anxious? Because we don't trust. Why are we quick to anger? We don't trust. Why are we stale, stagnant, and apathetic toward him, his church, our money, etc.? Because we don't trust. I believe the supreme need in our lives is an unrelenting, unwavering, and unfaltering trust in Abba. I also believe the most lacking thing in those who call themselves believers today is trust in Abba. Yahweh's love is not, and I'm going to get a little theological, I'll explain it. Yahweh's love is not a deistic love, but a paternal love. He doesn't love us as servants of his godly religion. He loves us as a papa loves his sons and daughters. All other religions have what I call a deistic God, a deistic love, which is if you serve me and you honor me and you uphold my mightiness, then I will welcome you. That's a deistic Godly, you think Buddhist, you think, you think whatever religion you want. That's not what Christianity is. That's what we've made it, but that's not what it is. Christianity is a paternal love, and this is what makes it drastically different because Abba, Yahweh, does not call us servants. Okay? There are places in Scripture where Jesus mentions his disciples are servants. But he always comes back around and reminds us, and all throughout Paul's writings and all throughout Old Testament, that Abba and Yahweh calls us sons and daughters. This is different. This is very different, okay? That we're not nasty, messed up, distant, awful, nasty, yucky people that just happen to show up to church, and when we worship, we earn the approval of some way-off, distant, way-too-high-to-reach God. That's how we see it. But what Yahweh is, is ever-close, ever-accessible, ever, let me say it like this, ever-accepting, and ever-approved of his sons and daughters. He's close, he's not distant, and he sent Jesus to fix our idea of what it means for him to be Abba. So the reason most have trust issues with God and have created a distant, uninterested view of him that is impossible to please is because religion taught us that Christianity is an outside-in religion. That the way you get in is by looking the look, talking the talk, having the right labels, and doing the right things. But Jesus' gospel is not religion, which is why it does not fit into religion. It's family. It's inviting lost sons and daughters back to the lap of the one who will stop at nothing to have his kids back close, who is slow to anger, 
and easy to please, who is kind and tender, whose love is so secure and firm that you could do nothing to get away from it, that dares you to ask for the nations so that he can give them to you. Y'all with me? Okay. Papa is easy to trust. We sing that song communion all the time. Take me back to the garden where it was oh so simple. It was easy to love. No space between us. It was easy to trust. No space between us. It was easy to trust. We sing that all the time. Papa is easy to trust because what? There's no space between us anymore. Jesus came, as I said, to primarily fix how we view Yahweh. So his birth into the creation came by way of a girl's willingness, and we're going to read this, to trust the word of the Lord before it was seen. And I have this, we've been talking about holiness for a little while, but let me just make a statement that's really bold. It's going to be something that doesn't seem bold until later on in life probably. But the greatest form of holiness is trust. One more time. You You should write this down if you're taking notes. The greatest form of holiness is trust. Ruthless trust is what we're called to live in as sons and daughters of God. Let me read this um, out of this book. This has become maybe my favorite book outside the Bible of all time. I've gone back through and read this again. It's called Ruthless Trust by Brennan Manning. If you haven't read this, you absolutely need to read this. But let me just read uh, this right here. Okay. Uh, Y'all hanging with me? I don't have a lot of notes, so just stick with me. When the brilliant ethicist John Cavanaugh went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta, he was seeking a clear answer as to how best to spend the rest of his life. On the first morning there, he met Mother Teresa. She asked, and what can I do for you? Cavanaugh asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for, she asked. She voiced the request that he had borne excuse me, he voiced the request that he had borne thousands of miles from the United States. Pray that I have clarity. How many of you have ever prayed that? Hey guys, pray that I have clarity. She said firmly, No, I will not do that. When he asked her why, she said, Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. When Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity he longed for, she laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. Let me just read a few more lines. It's so good. We ourselves have known and put our trust in God's love toward ourselves. 1 John 4, 16. Craving clarity, we attempt to eliminate the risk of trusting God. Fear of the unknown path stretching ahead of us destroys childlike trust in the Father's active goodness and unrestricted love. We often presume that trust will dispel the confusion, eliminate the darkness, vanquish the uncertainty, and redeem the times. But the crowd of witnesses in Hebrews 11 testifies that this is not the case. Our trust does not bring final clarity on this earth. It does not steal the chaos or dull the pain or provide a crutch. When all else is unclear, the heart of trust says, as Jesus did on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. If we could free ourselves from the temptation to make faith a mindless ascent into a dusty pawn shop of doctrinal beliefs, we would discover with alarm that the essence of biblical faith lies in trusting God. And as Marcus Borg has noted, the first is a matter of the head, the second trust is a matter of the heart. The first can leave us unchanged. The second intrinsically brings change. Almost done. The faith that animates the Christian community is less a matter of believing in the existence of God than a practical trust in his loving care under whatever pressure. The stakes here are enormous. For I have not said in my heart, God exists, until I have said, I trust you. The first assertion is a rational, abstract, 
a matter perhaps of natural theology, which we won't get into that, the mind laboring at its logic. The second is communion, bread on the tongue of an unseen hand, against insurmountable obstacles and without a clue as to the outcome. The trusting heart says, Abba, I surrender my will and my life to you without any reservation and with boundless confidence, for you are my loving Father. Last paragraph. Though we often disregard our need for an unfaltering trust in the love of God, that need is most urgent, is the most urgent that we have. It's the remedy for much of our sickness, melancholy, and self-hatred. The heart converted from mistrust to trust in the irreversible forgiveness of Jesus Christ is redeemed from the corrosive power of fear. The decisive or what I call second conversion from mistrust to trust, a conversion that must be renewed daily, is the moment of sovereign deliverance from the warehouse of worry. And you, I mean, this book is just amazing, okay? Monday, let me just kind of give you a, a testimony, I guess you would say. Monday morning, so in June of this year, without getting into any details, in June of this year, the Lord told me, I believe it was on, and I have it marked in my journal, because um, I'm going to read something else that I wrote this week, but um, y'all just hang with me. This is going to be a little teachy, but um, June 2nd, June 2nd, um, before a lot of stuff happened with race in our country, um, before a lot of stuff had happened just with a lot of different things. Um, on June 2nd, the Lord spoke and said, uh, you're about to go through something extremely difficult. People will leave you. People that you thought would never leave you will leave you, but I'm hiding you to protect you. Just, he wrote, I wrote that down. And the week after that was the most difficult week we've ever had in ministry. In fact, I mean, not the day after I wrote that. And um, that was the sixth month of this year. Okay, June 6th, the number of man. And for six months, the only way I know how to describe this, and I know a lot of you have gone through the same thing, okay, for six months up until December 1st, Monday, I walked through, the only thing I know how to describe it is plateaued, where I was hearing from the Lord, I was reading more than I had ever read, I was studying more than I had ever studied, but the part of me that dared to dream the impossible had almost been put on a shelf. And for six months, the Lord started digging deep into the guts of who I am and pulling out all the insecurities, all the fear of man, all the unforgiveness that I had within me and started revealing the truth of all of it before me. And it's been a six-month period of me having to face the fact that I actually still feared man. There's a difference in um, putting time between our issues and making them seem like they've been dealt with and actually dealing with our issues. So if you haven't dealt with something in 10 years, you might say, I don't deal with it anymore. But until you've gotten down into the guts of it and uprooted it, it's still there. It's just lying dormant until one thing triggers it to wake back up. This, I mean, this is crucial. This is what 2020 has done. It's called all the insecurities that everybody has about God, about themselves, about the people around them. It's called all that stuff up to the surface. And most people have not made it through that process. It's like the Lord has been refining and refining and refining, but when it gets to a certain point, it requires you to make the decision, I do not know what this leads to, but I'm going to trust anyway. And that right there is where most people stop. That's where most people stop, is they'll get to the point where they can still see clearly, still see clearly, still see clearly, and then they're on the edge of something that's going to lead to not clarity, but obscurity, And then the whispers start to come, not of what's coming up next, but of, do you trust me? I'm not going to tell you what comes up next for your own good. You're just going to have to walk. And in that moment, most people say, I don't want anything to do with it. 
and they start retreating back into anxiety. They start retreating back into worry. They start retreating back into unforgiveness. They start retreating back into isolation. They start not showing up to church. They start not showing up to community. They start not giving. And there's this trail after trail after trail that we've seen time and time again. And it all started with there was a moment where Yahweh said, do you trust me? And subconsciously, mostly, they've made the decision, I don't think I can and have retreated. I mean, that's where the Israelites were all throughout the Old Testament. That's where a lot of the New Testament church was, which is why Paul had to write multiple letters back to the same group of people to say, stop being crazy, come back to your first love. Because over time, when somebody's persecuting you or when a different reality shows up in front of you that you were not expecting, if you don't trust the Lord, you're going to miss out on what he actually has for you. This is why Jesus is in the garden, and he's praying, let this cup pass for me. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this. All of us have been taught growing up, Jesus is praying, please don't let me go through the big bad cross. That's, that is false. Jesus is sweating blood in the garden, and he's saying, if it be your will, do not let me die in this garden because I've got a cross to go to. That's the cup he's praying to be removed from him. Most of you were never, probably all of you were never taught that. We were taught that Jesus, because of our insecurities, we were taught that Jesus was saying, Lord, please don't let me go to the cross. I'm begging you. Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the earth. So when God said, let there be light, Jesus knew a cross was coming. So it's not like he got right up to the edge and said, you know what? I don't think I can do this. I don't really trust you. Please let me not do this. We created a God like that. I, I believe it's um, Blaise Pascal, I think that's the guy's name, that says this, and I've quoted this before, but he says, God created man in his image and man returned the favor. I don't know if you ever heard me say that. God created man in his image and then man created God in his image. So we think Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is wimping out because a lot of times when we get to the point that a situation is so unclear, we begin to metaphorically sweat blood over it, we start retreating back. And so we created a Jesus that also started retreating back. He was not. He was pushing forward. He was saying, I trust you to the point that I will not die in this garden because I'm going to that cross whether or not anybody likes it. That's the Savior we have. Okay? So a lot of us get to the point, and I say us because this is me included, we'll get right up to the point, and when we start gazing into the obscurity of darkness, that moment is when it's revealed within us if we actually trust Abba or not. And that's why I say there is total difference in moments of trust and a lifestyle of trust. Drastically different. There are unbelievers that have moments of trust in God. Let them get 100 miles an hour going into a car wreck. I promise you, they'll be calling out on the Lord. Right? We see this all the time. We see this in movies. We see this in reality. That's totally different than the one who says, I'm going to live my life in trust of Abba. So when you wake up in the morning, it don't matter if you're having a bad week or a good week, you got fired or you got a raise. When you wake up in the morning, you're saying, thank you. Thank you, I got fired from that job. Job says it's illegal for us to receive blessings from his hands and not receive uh, curses. Now, I, I think people get Job's theology really wrong. But the point is, what Job is trying to say is we receive good things from the Lord, but when we perceive that we're receiving something bad, even though it's illegal for us to receive anything bad from the Lord, but when we perceive that we're receiving something bad, we start rejecting it. And what that's a sign of is us being in control. And if we're in control, that means he's not in control. And if he's not in control, we've not been fully born again. That's the whole point. Jesus says that your conversion is so significant that it is as if you've climbed back in the womb and been born a totally new person. So if you've been saved and yet you still have control of your life, by definition, you haven't been so converted that you're a new person. You're a dusted off old person. You see what I'm saying? But this is what we have. Like, repeat a prayer, repeat a prayer, repeat a prayer. And what happens is, is we'll get in services like this, and the Lord will begin to do things. I heard uh, a spiritual brother, I guess you would say, this week, say this, that a lot of times we'll call services bad 
because of the response when all they were were screen doors for those who weren't there for the presence. So we'll get in a service like this. Well, man, Josh, Josh is talking about trust again. Yes, because if we're going to host the kingdom of God at the base level, we've got to trust Abba. I mean, that's what it means to be a child. Veda has complete trust in Jordan and I, complete and total trust in Jordan and I. That's why she does the thing that she does. In fact, she was riding her bike yesterday and doing all this stuff. She doesn't even worry about whether or not she's going out into the road. Do you know why? Because she knows if she gets too close to the road, mom or dad's going to stop her. That's how much trust she has in Jordan and I. Now, if I am a human and Jordan is a human and a human can trust a human to that degree, how much more should we trust the immutable goodness of an Abba who created you in the first place and Psalm says had every one of your days written in his book before one of them came to be? He knew every moment of your life before one moment ever came to be. Before you took a breath out of your mother's womb, he knew what your life would look like. And we have the audacity to say, I can do this better than you. We don't know what's coming up tomorrow. He does. He holds tomorrow. And we refuse to trust the one, the only one that can change tomorrow. Why? Because in order for you to go from the place of mistrust to trust you've got to cross a gaping canyon of obscurity. Here's what obscurity means. Obscurity is, is darkness, is chaos. It doesn't have form, okay? So it's unknown. So in order for you to go from mistrust to trust, you've got to travel through the canyon of unknown. James says it like this, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Well, what does the testing of your faith looks like? look like? I believe most of the time the testing of your faith is leading you into a place where the only way you're going to make it to the other side is if you say, yes, I trust you. Y'all with me? Okay, cool. So I've been on this journey this week, and I just want to read something I wrote Thursday. Um, and then I got a poem at the end. So uh, I'm just getting my dreaming back. That's we hit the month of, of December, the number 12, and, um, which has a lot of significance. And, and on day one, I felt the Lord just calling. I started dreaming again. And I started looking ahead to the future again. And I started having these hopes and these visions and this, this joy in the kindness of the Lord that I haven't had in six months. I've had glimmers of it, but not like this. And so look, this is what I wrote Thursday. There is a shift taking place in me right now that without a year like 2020 would be, in my opinion, impossible to perceive. That shift in one word is trust. In the past, Yahweh has frequently, frequently asked if I trust him and has followed up that question by teaching me the way of trust. But now the question isn't just if I trust him, it's do I trust him enough? And if I'm being honest, I've had moments of trust in the past three years, but when I have perceived obscurity, like I just talked about, on the horizon, which trust is required to produce, I inwardly slid into the mistrust of control. In 2020, all control that we thought we had came crashing down, thank the Lord. And we're left with the desolate wilderness of doubt, ingratitude, and seasonality. The state of being, um, I guess, seasonal, susceptible to seasons. When things were good this year, we trusted. When things were bad, we took the reins. Am I right? I mean, I, I did that. When things were great, Lord, I trust you. When things were bad, all right, I got to take control again because this ain't going how I thought. When you get a raise... Tithe. Praise the Lord. I'm on tithe. Right? When your salary gets cut. Whoever just made that noise, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. So if trust is seasonal, we don't have trust. We have contentment that we label as trust. If trust is seasonal, we do not have trust. We have contentment that we label as trust. Trust is when you're working through the night, 
excuse me, trust is when you're walking through the night following the voice of Abba, not because you can see where you're going, but because you trust in the faithfulness of the one leading. And this is, the, this, is this poem I wrote, so y'all just chill with me for a minute. Okay, so many moments of trust, or excuse me, many have moments of trust, but few live a life of trust. This is the shift that Yahweh is adjusting in me, taking a new pace, slowing down, becoming aware of goodness all around, learning to breathe, learning to rest, not people-pleasing, but loving the mess. Living in the goodness my papa sustains, dancing in the suns and singing in rains. Thanking for the good and the bad things alike, the moments of peace and the moments of strife. In all of the beauty of mountains so tall, in wonder of leaves in the valley that fall, I am the treasure of papa's set gaze. I live in trust and he lives amazed. Thank you. No, just kidding. But this is, this is it's call, it's calling out in me, and it should be calling. I don't know if any of y'all have been going through this. I would dare say if I've been going through this, then a lot of you have probably been going through the same thing, that there is a shift that's taking place right around Christmas time. There's a shift that's taking place where this whole year we've been on cruise control, and the Lord is saying cruise control is not going to cut it now. Now you've got to put the pedal to the metal. Now you've got to let some things fall. You've got to let some things rise up. And the way that you're going to do that is to put in the soil of who you are a level of trust that was not there before. That's the only way, okay? So let me go to Luke 1, but before I do that, I do want to read Romans 2. And so Romans 2, verse 4. And I want you to hear what Paul writes to the Romans. He says this. Hopefully you're there by now. We've had a long time. Romans 2. He says, do the riches of his extraordinary kindness make you take him for granted and despise him? Haven't you experienced how kind and understanding he has been to you? Don't mistake his tolerance for acceptance. Do, now listen to this. Do you realize that all the wealth of his extravagant kindness is meant to melt your heart and lead you into repentance? Now what is repentance? Just hang with me for a minute. Repentance means two things, Greek metanoia. It means to change how you think, number one, and simultaneously, hand in hand, to change directions, to turn and go another way. So you turn and go another way by changing how you think, okay? So repentance, a lot of times we see repentance as a response to sin, which it absolutely is. But a lot of times what we don't see is that it's just as important for us to change our thinking within our relationship with Jesus to push us forward as it is for us to repent when we sin. Because it, repentance isn't a response to sin. It is included. But repentance is a response for us going in the wrong direction. That could be one degree or a hundred degrees off. But if we're going in a minute direction that is anything but true north, that is an opportunity for us to repent and go back into the direction that we were designed to go in. It's an adjustment, if you will, okay? So what Paul is saying is, is that it was his kindness that led us to repentance. Now, what was the message that Jesus taught? John the Baptist taught it preceding Jesus, but then the message that Jesus taught was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Okay? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and Paul says it's kindness that leads us to repentance, and Jesus is teaching the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then the express image of God's kindness is Jesus. Y'all with me? Jesus comes into a religious scene that is highly religious, Way more religious than today, if you can imagine that, okay? Highly religious. That they're sticking to the law as close as they humanly possibly can. They're stoning people to death for sinning. They're stoning people to death for being adulterous. I mean, it's, they're doing insane stuff in our standard on the other side of Jesus and the cross today. However, that's the religious attitude that Jesus is birthed into. 
So Jesus comes onto the scene and shows up to a stoning, for example, and says, you who have never sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone as one who has never sinned, who is completely legal in stoning the girl and instead says, where's your people that condemn you? I don't know. They've gone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the one who could have stoned her and been completely righteous in doing so says, go and sin no more, and releases her. It's God fixing the idea that Yahweh is sitting up some distant space, throwing lightning bolts with pleasure every time we mess up. And Jesus comes into the creation and says, no, Abba is easy to please. It's kindness that leads us to repentance. Kindness is what has been drawing me into a repentance. And it's not because I've sinned. It's because there has been a season where I have allowed myself to slide to the point where I trust him about 50%, but the other 50% I still have control of. And if that's the case for me, I guarantee you it's the case for everybody in this room. That 50% of me says he's good, and the other 50% of me says Sometimes. So let's go to Luke 1 with that, all that in mind. Luke 1, and I'm going to start at verse 26, okay? So getting to Christmas. Now before I read this, I want you to keep in mind that there hasn't been a prophetic word from the Lord in 400 years. 400 years, there hasn't been a prophetic word from the Lord, Okay? So you're talking about generation after generation after generation after generation that has not heard a prophetic word from the Lord, and then this encounter takes place. So how Mary responds to this announcement that she's going to give birth to the Messiah is that much more drastic because of the fact that she, other than Zechariah getting the prophecy about John, which Mary did not know of, we can read that in Scripture, she was hearing something that no one had heard in 400 years. And her response to it is amazing with that in mind, okay? So here's where we're going to start. 126, I'm reading from the Passion Translation. Sorry, Brandon. But um, anyway, Passion Translation, I just like how it says this. All right. During the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God's presence to an unmarried girl named, or excuse me, to an unmarried girl named Mary, living in Nazareth, a village in Galilee, she was engaged to a man named Joseph, a true descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Grace to you, young woman, for the Lord is with you. And so you are anointed with great favor. Okay? The first thing he says is, Grace to you, the Lord is with you. So if you, if you read that in the original language, he wasn't saying, okay? Now this is really going to mess with you. He was not saying the presence of the Lord is with you. He was saying... Literally, the Lord is within you. As in, you have been given the conception of the Lord. 400 years of nothing. Then an angel appears to you, Mary, not a priest, not somebody in the Holy of Holies, eating lunch. I don't know what she was doing. She's sitting there living her life. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Grace to you, young woman. The Lord is with you. Can you imagine that? It, this, is, this is the equivalent to me. Well, I guess I'm not an angel. But an angel showing up to your room and saying, You're pregnant with the Son of God. You know what I mean? If somebody's going to doubt anything, should have been married. If it were me, I'd be like, I must have ate something bad. You know what I'm saying? So grace to you, the Lord is with you. So because of that, you are anointed with great favor. And Mary was deeply troubled over the words of the angel because of what I just said. She was deeply troubled over the words of the angel and bewildered over what this might mean for her. Why? Because she's a virgin and now suddenly she's pregnant. They didn't treat unmarried pregnant women in their day like we treat unmarried pregnant women today. I mean, possibly would have been put to death. High possibility. Okay? 
So she's wondering. She's deeply troubled, of course. And she's bewildered over what this may mean for her. But the angel reassured her, saying, Do not yield to your fear, Mary, for the Lord has found delight in you, it's the kindness, and has chosen to surprise you with a wonderful gift. You will become pregnant, so you'll, you'll mature in your pregnancy, with a baby boy, and you are to name him Jesus. He will be supreme, and he will be known as the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will enthrone him as king on his ancestor David's throne. He will reign as king of Israel forever, and his reign will have no limit. So he's talking about all, at that point, he's kind of prophetically speaking to all the nations and all the Gentiles coming in, have no limit. Mary said, but how could this happen? I'm still a virgin. And Gabriel answered, the spirit of holiness will fall upon you. And Almighty God will, will spread his shadow of power over you in a cloud of glory. Okay? Reminiscing on Exodus. And uh, this is why the child born to you will be holy, be set apart. And he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your aged aunt Elizabeth has also become pregnant with a son. The barren one is now in her sixth month. Verse 37, not one promise from God is empty of power, for nothing is impossible with God. Now listen to her response. This is huge. This is what we're talking about today. Then Mary responded saying, this is amazing. I will be the mother for the Lord. As his servant, I accept whatever he has for me. May everything you have told me come to pass. And the angel left. Now let me jump down to 42, okay? She goes, and he, she goes to see Elizabeth. When she sees Elizabeth, the baby John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb starts falling out in the spirit, jumping in the spirit, doing whatever he's doing in the spirit, kicking. And uh, which is funny, me, me and Jordan, we went for one of our ultrasounds when Veda, I think was like 20 weeks maybe. And, uh, and she was literally, we were watching this on the screen um, I think I have a video of this, I don't remember, but she was sliding down in her, I, I kid you not, was she sliding down in her womb and kicking off and sliding back up while we're watching this. And uh, so I can only imagine what's happening here too. But um, anyway, so with a loud voice, 42, she, this is Elizabeth, prophesied with power. Now listen to this. She said, Mary, you are a woman given the highest favor and privilege above all others. For your child is destined to bring God great delight. How did I deserve such a remarkable honor to have the mother of my Lord come visit me? The moment you came in the door and greeted me, my baby danced inside me with ecstatic joy. Now listen, great favor is upon you. Why? Because you have believed every word spoken to you from the Lord. Great favor is upon you. Let me say it like this. For you have trusted every word spoken to you from the Lord. From the Lord. And then Mary sings a song, which is awesome. I'm, I'm just going to stop right there. You can go back and read that. Okay. So up until Mary gets this uh, word and Zechariah gets a word a few months earlier about John the Baptist, 400 years of nothing. Let's say it like this. Israel was in the epitome of obscurity. Right? We live, one, we have the word of the Lord in Bible form, okay? Back then, this is before the printing press, okay? So it ain't like they got a million Bibles laying around. There's no printing press. So it's, it's spoken. The, most of the time, the word of the Lord is spoken. They would go to synagogue on the Sabbath, and they would read through out loud the law because most of them didn't have a Bible, right? So we today have access to the word of God. On top of that, the prophetic isn't just speaking through one prophet man, the prophetic is flowing through every believer that's been endowed with the Holy Spirit. So we have a plethora of the word of the Lord flowing through us, right? At that point, they had lived in 400 years of absolutely nothing. There had been events that, take, that had taken place before that, but not from the word of the Lord. Not from the word of the Lord, okay? So Joseph and Mary, Joseph and Mary are from the direct line of David, the beloved, Okay? The Lord chooses a virgin, a pure one, from the family of beloved identity who would be willing to trust the word of the Lord to bring Jesus into the creation. Let me say this one more time. 
the Lord chose a virgin or a pure one from the family of beloved identity, David, who would be willing to trust every word of the Lord to bring Jesus into the creation. At the point when Gabriel shows up and says, the Lord is with you, she wasn't feeling pregnant. She obviously wasn't showing that she was pregnant. She simply had a word from the Lord that she would be the mother of the Son of God. That's all she had. In that moment, she had a choice to make. Do I trust what the Lord says has been planted or conceived within me, even though I cannot see it? Hang with me. Or do I trust that when he prophesied a Messiah would come by the prophets of old, he meant it, and he's bringing it to pass in me, a daughter of beloved identity. Do I trust or do I not trust based on how she was going to respond to what was unseen? Because at that point, like I said, all she had was a word from this crazy once-in-a-lifetime-at-that-point encounter with an angel that said, you would be the mother of the Messiah. What? The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the prophets of old had prophesied of this Messiah coming. And yet, David, all the way back to Moses, all the way back to the beginning, when Eve is given the promise about the son that would crush the serpent, right? So all throughout the beginning and all throughout the Old Testament, there's prophecies of the Lord bringing his reign into the creation through a Messiah. However, the book closes in Malachi, and this is what it closes with. I want to read this. Malachi, this is the last words, you've heard me teach this before probably, the last words of the Old Testament, and then silence. He says this, okay? I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before you, uh, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. It's talking about the Messiah coming. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will strike the land with a curse. I'm going to send the prophet Elijah to you. And his job, Lord, i got to get this chair out of my way. His job is to turn the hearts of fathers back to sons and sons back to fathers. Unless that happens, I'll strike the land with a curse. Boom. And for 400 years, they're left hanging on that. We won't hang on a word for 40 minutes, right? I mean, you get 40 minutes in and we start getting antsy. We're talking about generation after generation after generation after generation. I would have to believe, and I could be wrong, I can't prove this. I would have to believe that after all that time, there were people starting to come up with ideas that maybe Isaiah and maybe Jeremiah and maybe Ezekiel, maybe Micah, maybe they didn't hear from the Lord. Maybe the Lord didn't really speak to them because it's been 400 years and we ain't seen anything close to a Messiah. We've seen the opposite. We've been destroyed. We've been put in sl- We've got our temple back, but then we've been destroyed again. That's where Hanukkah comes from. We've gotten all this stuff, but for 400 years he promised us a Savior, and yet we don't have a Savior. And Mary, living her life, gets a word from the Lord that says, all those prophecies, they're going to come through you. I would feel completely inadequate for that, let alone a 16, probably 16-year-old virgin just living her life. Here's the really interesting thing, too. Women were not treated very highly in that time. So on top, this is like the Lord is just giving a big punch to the religious spirit, okay? On top of all that, he's not sending this through some big mighty man. He's sending this through a girl, Right? Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And then a girl, 16-year-old virgin, Gabriel said, you're going to mother the Messiah. On top of that, your Aunt Elizabeth, who was too old and barren, she's also pregnant, for nothing is impossible with the Lord. If you read throughout the whole Old Testament, 
you'll notice a trend that almost, not every, but almost every significant figure, I guess you would say, man or woman in the Old Testament, every, almost everyone that had anything of significance in the kingdom of God came from barren mothers. I mean, you see this over and over and over and over again. And the reason is, Damon Thompson came here and preached, uh, I guess it was last August. And uh, was it last August? Is that right? Yeah, last August. And, um, and he mentioned something called the law of divine restraint. And uh, what he was talking about was the Lord will withhold something to the point that when it comes to pass, everyone will know the only way this came to pass was because the Lord allowed it. So the reason he brings significant figures through barren women is so that when they come to the point of birth, everyone will know the only way that that thing is kicking and breathing is because of the Lord. So when he comes to Mary, he says, you're going to mother the Messiah. On top of that, Elizabeth, who was old and barren, is right now six months pregnant. For not one word in the Passion Translation of the Lord will fall. Let me say, he says it like this. Um, not one promise from God is empty of power, for nothing is impossible with God. Mary gives birth to John the Baptist, who is the one that's going to bring fathers to sons and sons to fathers, legacy. Okay? And then coming right behind the message of legacy is the Messiah. Let he who has an ear hear. John the Baptist is in line to be the high priest. I'm going somewhere with this, so y'all just hang with me. i got a few more minutes. John the Baptist is the son of Zechariah, who is a priest, who was in the Holy of Holies. Okay? So he's in line to be a priest. John should have been the next priest in line, behind Zechariah. Instead, Scripture says John chooses the lonely wilderness. And while he's in the wilderness, what is he being convinced of? I believe he's being convinced of the kindness of God. Why? Because the kindness of God is what leads men to repentance. And what was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I believe John the Baptist was in the wilderness rather than in the temple because instead of growing up in religion, God intended for the forerunner of the Messiah to grow up in a wilderness of being convinced that he is actually kind. And then I begin to look at all this. And let me, tell, let, me just, let me just be straight up with you. I got a prophetic word years ago that I believe is for this family because I'm a spiritual father, which means anything that's spoken over me is for y'all too, most of it. And so I believe this is for us too. One of the words, I take every, people give me words all the time and I take them with a grain of salt because there's a lot of people that just want to give me an agenda. But um, I pray with them, I pray over them, you know, make sure they're from the Lord. This is one of the ones. I was traveling, and I was leading worship in Ohio at a church, and I forget the church's name, but I'll never forget this guy's name. His name was Jordan Beal. And after I led worship, uh, he came up to me. This was years before I ever got, re I would say, converted. Um, I was half born again. I had repeated a prayer. And um, anyway, and I had this conversation with him, and he said, I don't do this a lot, but I believe the Lord has shown me that you, and I say you, and now I'm talking about dream, are the John the Baptist of this generation. So I put that on the shelf because I was like, uh, I know John the Baptist. I don't know what that means. That's cool. And, uh, and I go through this whole process of being converted. And when I say that, I mean like, like actually born again. Okay. And as I go through this process, right now where we are, the Lord brought me back to this this week. This we are the John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? He was preparing the way for the Lord. Okay. What was he doing in the wilderness? He was doing three things. He was being convinced of what I just said, kindness. But he was calling the hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. The way Jesus was going to come into the creation is by John presenting a united people before the Lord that their focus had shifted on legacy and honor. And then I think about the stuff that we've been talking about for the past three years, and here's what we've been talking about. Beloved identity, God is good, God is kind, we trust him, and legacy. I'm telling you, and I'm not, I'm not saying this just as a hype you up thing, I'm telling you this as a screen door. 
Because if you want to be here and you want to be a part of this, then there are things that we're going to have to tighten up, myself included. But if we are willing to do that, we're going into a season where we see the kindness of God on such display that you will be convinced of his goodness. You won't have to hear a message that he's good to hype you up. You won't have to hear a song that he's good to hype you up. You'll wake up in the morning, see the sunrise come up, and tears will begin to swell in your eyes because you're so convinced he's good. Me and my daughter were walking um, our, our neighborhood. Some of y'all have been there, but our neighborhood has a pond. But it's like, it's, it's man-made. So the way they had to build it was they built up the land way high. And so uh, she calls it a mountain. And um, it's really interesting, depending on your maturity, what you call mountains and hills. But anyway, um, <laughs> so we're, uh, we're walking, and, uh, you know, we're, we're running and all that stuff. And she stops, and she goes, wow. And I'm like, like looking around, like, what is she talking about? And then my phone alarm starts going off because dinner was ready. And uh, so I thought that's what she was talking about. And, um, and so I stopped and I was like, what are you talking about? And she, said, and she looked up at the sky and she said, wow. And then she said, which is going to be funny, but she said, the northern lights. And, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but, 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 I, I mean, there's probably some deep prophetic stuff to that. But anyway, I... So I stop and I look, and it's one of those sunsets like we always have in the fall where the sky is just like burnt orange and like all this other stuff. And I didn't even notice it. Literally, like I'm just running and playing, and she's running, and she stops in a childlike wonder and awe and takes a moment to get everything else out of the way and just enjoy the fact that there's a sunset. She knows what it means to live in trust and goodness. My alarm's going off, so me, I'm thinking, we got to go eat because I love eating, right? I'm thinking our alarm's going off. We got to go eat. She's saying, I don't care if we eat or not. Look at the sunset. This is a massive shift. Mary, Mary, I believe, is given access to birth the Messiah into the creation because God looked ahead and saw that she would be willing to hear a crazy, insane word from the Lord. And instead of responding, there's no way this could happen. I'm losing my mind. She responded and said, may everything that you have spoken come to pass in me. I believe that's why the Lord chose her. I don't believe it was because she had a talent. I don't believe it was because she was going to be a great mother, even though she probably was. I don't believe it was because Joseph was going to be a great dad. I believe he was looking for someone who was willing to say, this is extremely crazy in the eyes of everybody else, and yet I trust you. Her identity made trusting that much easier. Wherever she, she was from the line of David, Beloved identity. So when she hears the words, the Messiah is coming through you and it clicks, oh, I came from David. It made it easier for her to understand this actually might be legit. How convinced you are of beloved identity will determine when the Lord speaks obscurity into your life, whether or not you can adequately say yes to trusting. How convinced you are of your identity. If you're convinced that you are beloved, if you're convinced that you are the righteousness of God, when he says, if you'll ask of me, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, you won't say, ah, man, that seems a little too big for me. Because you believe you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're the head, not the tail. You're the first, not the last. Above only, not beneath. Right? If you know who you are, when he comes and speaks these world-changing things into your life, your response is going to be, yeah, that makes sense. Jesus had no issue asking for that. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. For Jesus, that was a non-issue. I'll ask for whatever I want and I believe I'm going to get it. If I want to walk on water, I believe I'll walk on water. If I want bread to be multiplied, I believe I'll get bread multiplied. And let me say this, this is real dangerous territory, okay? But if the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in us, I believe we should have the confidence in asking from God anything as Jesus asked for. Why? Because the same thing that was in him is in me. And we have been called sons and daughters of God. John 17 says he loves you and I with the same love. The Father loves you and I with the same love that he loves his son with. He sees us as Jesus. 
So when I ask for anything, he's hearing that as a father who loves his son. And I believe that when we begin to ask these things, specifically led by the Holy Spirit, that hits his ears the same way Jesus' word hit his ears. So when we're asking, multiply this bread, it hits him in the same way that Jesus, when he said, multiply this bread, hit his ears. But we're not convinced of that because we're not convinced he sees us as he sees Jesus. So the reason we're not speaking to a mountain and watching it jump into the sea is not because the power of Jesus has gone away or because of cessationism. It's because we aren't convinced that when I speak those words, it has the same authority as Jesus Christ himself speaking those words. You know, Scripture says he will not share his glory with another. Have you ever heard that? He will not share his glory with another. Here's the thing. You and I aren't another. I'm not another from Jesus. I'm one with Jesus. So either you're one with him or you're not. If you're born again, you are. Right? So if that's who you are, we don't need to waste our time seeing ourselves as anything less than what we are. And that's the lie of the enemy right there. You want to know where temptation, and I said this last week, you want to know where temptation comes in? It's not coming in to try to kill you and you know, do all this other stuff. The way he's going to come and steal and kill and destroy is one whisper that maybe you're not good enough for that. Or maybe they don't think you're pretty enough. Or maybe they don't think you're good enough. Or maybe, and all these whispers start coming into your mind, and what happens? You start seeing yourself lower, 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 lower. And the lower you see yourself, the more difficult it is to trust in an Abba that at that point you don't believe even sees you with love. But if you're convinced he sees you with an unrelenting love, then you're going to get to the place that no matter what you have done, no matter what you're holding, no matter what you've been through or how you've responded to what you've been through, you're going to ask and believe that you will receive. But here's how that's going to start too. We talked about this Tuesday night, and then I'll call the band up in a second, but I'm just feeling this. This is how, this, we talked about this Tuesday night. If you weren't here, then you missed it. But I believe one of the most difficult things it is for people in America to do is forgive. Which is exactly why I prayed for the president-elect just now. Because here's, here's the thing. If you got mad at that, you need to forgive. Why don't you say an amen? Right? Oh, brother, this, this election's rigged. I don't care what it is. We need to, we need to honor and we need to forgive. Well, I will, well, Mark 11. Jesus says, if you have faith, you can speak to a mountain, tell it to jump into the sea. Whatever you ask, if you have faith, you'll receive it. But, but, if while you're praying, you realize you haven't forgiven someone, you need to stop talking to the mountain and go talk to the person you haven't forgiven. So we're screaming our guts out at mountains when there are people in our lives that we haven't forgiven. And it'll never work. You can't scream loud enough. You can't say in Jesus' name enough. It ain't a magic, you know, like, and as long as I say in Jesus' name, it's going to come to pass. No, as long as you forgive, you can speak to a mountain in Jesus' name and it jump into the sea. The Im- See, we think bearing the image of God means, you know, doing the big flashy stuff. And that was born out of religion. That was born out of the same thing the megachurch was born out of, etc. That's what a lot of the care. I grew up charismatic, and I love people who are charismatic. But the charismatic movement has become that. It has become we got to get flashy. We got to get people to fall out. We get, and I love all that stuff. But if we aren't forgiving, if we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, if we don't love our enemy, if we're not tithing, we don't bear the image of God. So bearing the image of God starts at the place that is not flashy, but is going to get you to the place where you no longer need the flashy to impress you to the point where you semi-trust. But man, I feel this right now, okay? Listen, so how, how, let me say it like this. How are we going to heal the sick like we've never healed them before? It's not making sure we scream our guts out at the sick. It's going to make sure we forgive everybody in our path, and I promise you we'll start healing the sick like we used to. Well, Joshua, Mark 11, there's my verse, okay? 
I mean, I'm, ser- seriously, Jesus did not, let me tell you what Jesus did not do, and it's not in Scripture. Jesus didn't wake up every day and say, you know what, let's go heal 100 people. He woke up every day and said, I'm the son of Abba, let's go live our lives. And as he lived his life as the son of Abba, guess what happened? People got sick, people got set free, people's sins got forgiven, people got to forgive other people, and he gets in all this trouble because, not because of the miracles, but because of the way he is operating as the Messiah that went so against what the religious spirit wanted. There were plenty of people doing miracles in Jesus' day other than Jesus. You just read throughout history. Plenty of people. It wasn't his miracles that were causing them to get mad. It was the fact that he was living in a way that made religion see how nasty and corrosive that the false love that they were giving to other people actually was. That's Jesus. So Jesus is coming in in 2020, and I believe we have completely missed Jesus in this year, for the most part. We've completely missed him, because we thought when we say, hey, we're going to get clear vision, it's going to be 2020, it's going to be the best year ever. What we thought is that Jesus was going to come in and slay all of us. And what he actually did is he came in and slayed every part of you that wasn't with him. And when he did that, we, because we were looking for the flashy, completely missed and honestly neglected the fact that he was there all along. Man, y'all are quiet. And so we get into this place where we start moving into this rhythm that we've got to have something bigger and better and more explosive and more surprising and more flashy to continue. This is why we have conferences every year in the church. We do conferences like nobody's business. We do conference after conference after conference. We do more conferences than the people who sell the makeup. Uh, we do conference after conference after conference. You know why? Because we got to keep sparking people. We got to keep sparking them. We got to keep getting them excited. Let me say, I don't need anybody to get me excited. I'm excited. Do you know why? Because I've been convinced of the kindness that has led me to repentance. And when you get to that place, you no longer start looking for the flashy, and you can finally settle down at a pace where you can notice the sunset and be thankful and honor the little things in life that you never used to honor because they weren't getting you to where you thought you were supposed to go. Y'all go ahead and come up here. So, I mean, what, so what does it look like? Jesus was born, this, this whole Christmas season that we're celebrating is a celebration, I believe, first and foremost of one woman's, one girl's ability to trust in what was unseen. This whole story, a lot of us go to Luke 2. You need to start at Luke 1. There's a reason why Luke 1 is there. A lot of us, when we get to Christmas, we want to jump over to Luke 2 where there's angels and wise men and you know, all this other stuff. And we'll miss the girl that in the middle of complete obscurity was able to say, let it be as you have said. I am a testimony of his kindness. I don't know about you. I I am a testimony of his kindness. I shouldn't be up here. I'm the least qualified to be up here. I didn't even go to college. Some of y'all are shocked. I I didn't go to college. I'm literally the least qualified person to be up here. It's the kindness of the Lord that has me here so that I can help you be convinced of the kindness of the Lord that leads you to a place of changing how you think. I mean, mean, what, what what if we, as a people of God, could get to the place where we started to honor, like I preached last week, the little things? What if we as a body could get to the place where we start being aware of things, where when you receive bad news and when you receive good news alike, you say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You do whatever you want. I don't got to know about it. I don't have to know what's coming tomorrow, but I'm going to trust that if you hold it, If you hold it and if you're in control, that every one of my steps will be guided before me and you will lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. 
And even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear nothing, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You don't send them away, but you prepare a table before me in the presence of them and anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness or kindness and love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me, let me read one more verse. Y'all go ahead and come up here, Ellington. I'm gonna read this in the, uh, in the complete Jewish Bible, okay? I don't read this version a lot, um, but listen to what this says. Hebrews 11.1, 1, very familiar, but this is why I'm gonna read this. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this in, the, in that CJB version. Trusting, trusting is being confident of what we hope for and convinced of what we don't see. Trusting is being confident of what we hope for and convinced of what we don't see. Are you, are you, I just want to ask this question. Are you convinced? Oh, there it goes. Are you, are you convinced? Are you convinced of what you don't see? Are you at the place with your walk that you are convinced in his character and that guides even the places that you don't see? Do you wait for clarity or do you move by the word of the Lord? Do you wait for things to be brought into the daylight? Or are you willing to put on your boots and walk by way of Abba in the night? I mean, this is, this is huge because I believe where we are right now in this year is a big pile of obscurity. We don't know what's happening next month. We don't know when this thing's going to be over. But as for us, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? And so we have an opportunity to step into the obscurity and say, I don't need clarity. In fact, I have clarity and it's Abba is good. And that's all the clarity I need. Some of you have received things from the Lord that you haven't moved on. And the reason you haven't moved on that, and I'm not telling you you need to move on things too early because that's another thing we get into when we stop trusting. So I'm saying, but... Some of you might be in a place that you haven't moved on the things the Lord has spoken over your life just because it's not clear. And that's it. And you know the Lord has said, do it. You know the Lord has said, go. You know the Lord has said, give. You know the Lord has said, get out of that relationship. Get into that, whatever the case may be. Forgive your family members. You know that the Lord has called you into something, but because deep within, there's obscurity and darkness and not knowing what's on the other side, you won't do it. And I'm telling you today, you've been praying for clarity and clarity and clarity and clarity. And prophetically, let me tell you, clarity is not coming for your own good. Let me rephrase that. Clarity is coming, but it's not coming through clarity. It's coming through you and I being convinced that we can trust the immutable goodness of Abba. That's what it's coming through. I mean, let, what, let Christmas season, let this just be a testimony to how much we trust. That if Mary could trust to the point where the Messiah comes from a virgin womb, then we can trust to the point that the Messiah might be coming through us too.